Well, good morning. Wow, it's good to see all you out this morning. And uh, thank you, Heather. Uh, man, we love what Heather does, and uh, she is overflowing uh, with help. And uh, people, people love Heather in our community because she uh, shares the love of Jesus, first of all, but then she helps them in a myriad of ways. So we want to thank her. And, and while we're thanking, we want to thank our veterans. Uh, if we have veterans, I know we have veterans here. Will you all stand up this morning? Just stand up for us. All right. Thank you. Thank you all so much for serving and for giving us the, uh, the security and safety that we enjoy and we appreciate and oftentimes take for granted, unfortunately. And while we're talking about that too, I wanted to just um, kind of um, encourage you to, to continue to pray for the church in Texas uh, for that horrible uh, thing last week, just, uh, just unbelievable. And I just wanted to kind of uh, share a little bit about what we've done to address security issues. Uh, we do have several things that we do, including locking doors. Um, whenever we're all in here, we have a security team that's led by Rodney Sherrod, who is commander of Fayette County Police Department, and gets the team together to talk and plan. We have a security manual, policies. Uh, we have two people on duty uh, while we're in the service. We have a sworn officer that's outside. We have a volunteer that's also uh, on, uh, uh, on duty, whatever. And then we have security with our children as well. So uh, we're trying to address this. We know that there's no way to avoid every uh, type of danger, but we are addressing this. We just want you to know and, and be at peace uh, and just trust the Lord that, that uh, he's going to care for us. And, and please keep that... Uh, that church, all those families in your prayers, if you would. Well, I don't want to start on a down note, I feel like I have, but I want to start on an up note, because we're going to talk about a guy in the Bible that I know you've heard about, probably heard great stories about. We're going to look at some different facets of the life of David. And I wanted to, uh, you know, we looked at this series, and we, let's talk about David. David was different things, but I thought, you know, let's, let's look at David in different ways, an overview of his life and uh, what David was really like. And so we're going to kind of approach it rather than just talking about the fact he was a shepherd or a king or whatever that. We're going to look at uh, certain characteristics of David's life. And uh, David was a guy that God called for a very specific time and place. And I was thinking about that, and I read this uh, little article I thought was interesting. It, uh, and I hate to, I know you, we don't have a lot of Auburn fans in the room, uh, but uh, and after a big win yesterday and another one coming today for UK, you know, but let's Let's have pity on Auburn, all right? Nothing else, all right? And let me tell you a story about Auburn. The legendary coach at Auburn, a guy named Shug Jordan, asked his former linebacker, Mike Colin, to help him do some recruiting. He's going to send him out, and this was several years ago, uh, send him out to do some recruiting. And so Mike said, I I'd love to do so, coach. He said, what kind of player are you looking for? And the coach said, well, Mike, you know that guy that you knock him down, he just stays down? And Mike goes, yeah, we don't want him, do we? He's like, no, we don't want him. He said, you know, Mike, then there's that guy that you knock him down and he gets up, and then you knock him down again, and he stays down. Mike says, no, we don't want him either, do we? And the uh, coach says, no, we don't want him. He said, then there's a guy, you know, you knock him down, he gets up. 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 And Mike goes, that's the guy we want, right, coach? The guy said, no, 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 Mike, we don't want him either. I want you to find a guy that's knocking everybody down. That's the guy we want. If I read that, I thought, you know, that's kind of what David was like. We're going we're gonna to read about the life of David. And he was, uh, he was a young man with little promise, but he turned into a guy that had an incredible power and potential because God was in him and God was with him. 
This man, David, is a guy that I think we all can identify with in a great way. You know, a lot of characters in the Bible are kind of hard for us to identify with. I mean, think about Paul. You know, Paul said, be an imitator of me as I'm an imitator of Christ. Now, how many of us would really feel comfortable doing that? You know, the measure of Paul, this incredible guy, you know, I, I can't compare myself to Paul. But David's one of those guys that you know you can identify with. He's a regular guy, a blue-collar guy, a farmer, rancher, shepherd, human, humble, very humble beginnings. But he became the greatest king that Israel had ever had. He became one of the greatest figures in the Bible. I didn't realize how much David was really spoken about in the Bible, but his name is used over 1,030 times, and that's a lot, probably only compared to that of Jesus. It's amazing. David is mentioned in 28 of the 66 books of the Bible. Moses was a big figure. Joseph were a big figure, but each of them have 14 chapters to tell their story, and David has 66 chapters the tell of his life and what he did. So David is a huge figure. He was a shepherd, a musician, a writer, a warrior, a servant, a fugitive, a king. He was a saint, a sinner, an adulterer, a murderer, a father, a friend, a husband, a success, and a failure. Now, more than likely, you can identify with at least one of those characteristics in your own life. You can say, I understand what it's like to be multiple roles and maybe to be successful or failure in many of those. But you know what the greatest description of David is in the Bible is that David was a type of Jesus, an Old Testament type of Jesus. Now, we don't use that language a lot, but what it means, a type is a person that's a foreshadowing of the Messiah, or he represented Jesus who would come. You know, in the Old Testament, they always talked about the Messiah, the Savior who would come. And when they did so, they always talked about him being in the line of David. He would be a descendant of David. He would be like David. So David was kind of a foreshadowing or a, you know, a, a pre-representation of Jesus before he actually came into our world. Now, he wasn't perfect like Jesus. You're going to figure that out in our study. But he, and he came from humble beginnings. He, he was very simple, unknown, obscurity. But then he became a king that would save his people. And David was also an ancestor of Jesus, definitely from the line of, of David. We start getting into Christmas here in a few weeks, and uh, we're going to be talking about how Jesus was born in the town of David. He was a descendant of David. So it's really significant that David had uh, and, uh, descendants from the line and through the line from which Jesus was born. Now, to tell the story of David, we have to back up and we have to tell the story of two other people. Two other people play heavily into the life of David. And the first one is Samuel. Samuel, Samuel has an amazing life of his own. If you read the story about Samuel, his parents didn't, couldn't have any children. His mother was barren. Her name was Hannah. And she prayed to the Lord for a child. She prayed for a child and she said, God, if you will give me a child, I will give him back to you. I will dedicate him to the kingdom, to your work and to ministry. And so sure enough, the child of promise, Samuel was conceived and born. And Hannah was faithful. When he was a small child, she took him into the uh, the, the, the temple and dedicated him to God and left him there for the priest to raise, a man named Eli. Well, as Samuel grew up, he became a priest because he was of that line and he was raised as a priest, but he also was a judge. In fact, he was the last of the judges who ruled over the people of Israel. There was a time period, well, I think there were 14 judges, and Samuel uh, was born near the end of that period. He was the last judge over the people of Israel. But he also was a prophet of God. 
a prophet of God. Now, we think about a prophet as being someone who predicts the future, right? But actually, a prophet is just someone who speaks for God. Now, in the Old Testament, we have several prophets, some major, some minor, that, that, that wrote books, that, that prophesied what God's going to do. Prophets came up before the king. We, we read all about them. Uh, but their job was to speak for God. Now, obviously, their main role has been fulfilled. Nobody is speaking inspired words right now. Why? Because we have the inspired. We, we have the Bible. So their role has been fulfilled by the word of, the God, of God. But in Ephesians 4, the Bible tells us, this is in the New Testament, for Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. So we believe today that there is a gift of prophecy in the church, not to speak inspired words of God, but instead that would lead to, uh, to someone to pray and to direct us and seek God's will for the church. A little bit later on next year, we're going to be uh, talking about these roles. We're going to be kind of rolling out, trying to figure out what your gifting and your passion really is. And you're going to, some of you are going to discover that you actually probably have the gift of prophecy to a point in that you have a heart to pray, a heart to seek God's will for the church. So prophecy is still, still around, but just in a little different form than it was in that day. But at any rate, Samuel being a priest, a, a judge, a prophet, he, he was leading the people of Israel. When he grew old, there came time to say, who's going to take over? Because Samuel was at the point where he was an older man. His sons, he was not a good dad. His sons were not going to succeed him. And so the people began to say, this is a great time for us to have a king. We want a king like everybody, every other country has. We want a king. They chanted that, you know, before uh, Samuel. And it hurt Samuel's feelings. And God said, you know what, Samuel, you should not be offended because I'm the one that they are rejecting, not you. I am the king of my people Israel, but they don't want me as a king. And so what God did is he gave, him, gave them a king. You know what, sometimes God's judgment is to give us what we think we want. Have you ever thought about that? Where we think we want something and we, you know, we strive for that. Maybe it's a job that we got to have and then we find out that, that we don't own the job, the job owns us. And we're a slave to it now. Or maybe, uh, maybe what we think we want is money. And we get money, but we, we discover that money doesn't make us happy. But, but money does have a, a pull on our heart. And it pulls us away from God. You know, maybe someone says, I'm miserable in my marriage. I just want a divorce. I just want out. And then later on, and I've heard many people say that, it was a mistake. It was a mistake, you know. Sometimes God's judgment is to give us what we want, what we think we want. And when we disregard God... And his will, we become miserable. You know, I'm kind of a country music fan. I know that for some that you, you like that, others you, you kind of scorn that. But several years ago, Garth Brooks had a song, you know. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. And I think back, you know, there are many times that I prayed for something that thank God he didn't give me. Because that's not what I needed. But sometimes his judgment is, I'm going to give you what you think you want. And so God gave them a king of their choosing. And his name was Saul. And he had everything that they wanted in a king. He was tall and broad shoulders and, you know, he, he was of military bearing and everything. He was outwardly impressive. That's the second person in David's story because their lives were intertwined for many, many years. That's the person that, that took the first spot of kingship. Outwardly impressive, but a dud inside. And very soon it became obvious that Saul was not 
the kind of king the people wanted or God wanted. He wasn't a godly king. He didn't seek after God. He didn't obey God. And he was moody and arrogant. He had all these problems, and God withdrew from him. God just pulled his will, his blessing, away from Saul. And soon, he began to lose battles. The people were disillusioned. Saul sunk into a depression. In fact, a lot of people say that he was probably mentally ill. But here's the amazing thing. God let him reign for 42 years. God's judgment on the people of Israel was even after God had withdrawn him early in it from him in his early in his kingship, God still let him reign for 42 years. Now next week, we're going to take a, some time and we're going to do a comparison between the way Saul led and the way David led. It's going to be an interesting, interesting way of looking the, about that. And you'll look at your own life to see how you're living as well. But at any rate, by the time that God said, you know what, I'm done with Saul, he was ready to select a new king. And so he goes out and he calls Samuel, who had already retired. If you, if you read this, again, it's 66 chapters, we can't read all that. But if you read this, Samuel retired. He's settling back, you know, and uh, moving to the ocean or whatever they did in that day. So he's retired. God said, Samuel, dust off your anointing horn because we're going to have to go anoint somebody else. And I'm tired uh, of, of Saul and somebody's news is going to be put in place. And so God told Samuel, Samuel, I want you to go and anoint a new king to replace Saul. And this is where we're going to pick up our scripture this morning. It's in 1 Samuel 16. I'm going to read quite a bit here to kind of give us a setting for David's life. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Because Samuel was all brokenhearted because of Saul's failure. Since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. Now this was, uh, by way of explanation, they would take the horn of a sheep or a cow, whatever, and fill it up with oil, olive oil usually, and then they would anoint a person and pour it over their head. That was the way they identified this person as being set apart and being used by God. So he said, I want you to get, fill your horn up with oil, be on your way. I'm sending you to the Jesse, uh, excuse me, I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Now does Bethlehem ring a bell to anybody? We're going to talk about Bethlehem in about a month, aren't we? Because Bethlehem is where Jesus was born, so it's the city of David. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And they asked him, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, which was the oldest son of Jesse, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab, his second oldest son, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shemaiah, the third son, to pass by. But Samuel said, not, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? And he said, they're still the youngest, he answered, he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, 
We will not sit down until he arrives. And so he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So you get the story here. Samuel goes to Jesse's place and he had seven sons to choose from. And I, I view it almost like a beauty contest. You know, these guys came out, flexed their muscles a little bit, you know, kind of strutted their stuff, maybe showed off a little bit. You know, everyone, Samuel was like, nope, this is not the one. And when it was all, when he was done, I, I got a feeling Samuel was kind of discouraged. He's like, I, I thought, God, you said, you know, I thought this was going to be the man here somewhere. I was sure your chosen one was one of them. Because you don't have any more sons, do you? Like God said there would be a son. Do you got one more? And Jesse said, well, you know him. I got a son, but you don't want him. He, he's just a kid. He's down there with the sheep. And David obviously is the least impressive of the sons. Not at all kingly. And in fact, his dad didn't even put him in the lineup. You know, that's pretty sad, isn't it? Your, your mom and dad are supposed to be your champions, the one, you know, on your team. And you don't even put him in the lineup. You don't even consider him. But when David comes up, it's instantly obvious that, hey, this is God's chosen one. And God explains it to Samuel. This is incredible scripture. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. So what does it mean in, when it says that God looks at the heart? Looks at the heart. We all know what a heart is. We've seen that, haven't we? We see that internal organ that's in the, you know, the left side of your chest that beats and pumps blood all over the, the, the body. Surely God's not talking about an organ in our, in our body. He's not talking about that because the Bible, the, in the Bible, the heart symbolizes the very center of our being. It is a spiritual epicenter of our entire life because it's what's on the inside that matters. God does not look at the outside. Isn't it great that God doesn't look at the outside? You know, some of us are great physical specimens, but many of us, we, we can't claim that at all. We want God to look deeper than the external. We want God to look inside of us to see who we really are, at the being, our spiritual being, and, and that we can change. You know, we can make a difference in that. We may look good on the outside, but we can be rotten within. Ever seen somebody, somebody like that? Ever some, seen someone who's beautiful or very attractive, but inside their heart is dark? and evil, and mean. We, we all know people like that. Or you can very, look very unimpressive on the outside and have a true heart for God. Because here's the thing, God is primarily concerned with your heart. Should we take care of our physical bodies? Yes, we all should, probably better than we do. But what really matters is what's inside. In Mark chapter 7, the Bible says, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from within and defile a person. We can't always see those things, but God looks beyond the outside and God sees the inner person, the heart. And the heart of the matter is, it's a matter of the heart. That's really, really what it's all about. God knows what's in your heart. And here's the great thing, God is in the heart-changing business he is in the heart transplant, heart transformation business. You know, I remember many years ago, I heard about the first heart transplant. I mean, heart surgery was a big deal. But thinking about a heart transplant, how could it be possible that you could take this 
essential organ out of a person, keep them alive, and put another one in that had been don- uh, given as a donor. Who, who, who could imagine that? And if you remember the first one, it, it worked. It didn't, the gentleman didn't last, didn't live very long, but it actually worked. And now today, it's not routine, but it's common. That they can actually transplant a heart into someone and change that, that, uh, that person's future. You know what? God's been in the heart-changing business long before that. God wants to give us a new heart, a new heart, but only if we are willing to submit our heart to Him to be changed. You know, we talk about people giving their life to Christ. We talk about conversion. And I was just thinking, you know, this, this really is the essence of conversion when it comes to it. You know, we know that people come up and they make a confession of faith, and, and, and then also whenever we do that, we're, we have a baptism. You know, last week was awesome. We called that kind of a baptism Sunday. We had four on Sunday. We had one uh, midweek, so five people baptized, and that is awesome. I mean, we got to applaud for that for sure. That is, that is awesome. But, you know, we, we can say the right words and we can go through the motions, but a real conversion means that our hearts have to be changed. That God wants to do something inside of us, and he wants to transform the essence of our spiritual being. That's what conversion is all about. Now, that doesn't mean that you're perfect. You know, we're going to look at David's life, and we're going to see that David was far from perfect, far from perfect. David struggled with lust. I mean, his issue was lust and women, and we'll talk more about that. At one point, he gave in to lust, and he, uh, even when he was the king in the most powerful nation uh, in the world, he committed adultery with the wife of one of his military officers. And that led him to deceit and the officers murder by David's command. I mean, you talk about a heart, talk about a heart that turned. We're going to see that David was a lousy father. He didn't do a good job leading his kids at all. But here's what's interesting. In Acts 13, it says, God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. A man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So, so God can take our nature and he can change that and he can make us a person after his own heart. Now what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? What does that mean? How do we describe that individual and the character of that person? They can look like anything on the outside. The external is not important. But what does it mean to have a heart like God's? I want to, I want to tell you, I think there are three things. Real quick, I want to identify them before we, before we wrap up. First of all, to have a heart like God means that we have an attitude of repentance. That we have an attitude of repentance. David wasn't perfect at all. He made some serious mistakes. It had some long-term consequences. We'll talk about those as well. But when David was confronted with his sin, he was genuinely sorry. He confessed those sins before God, and he was forgiven. Let me, let me read a scripture in Psalms 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from all my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you, O Lord. Only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I mean, that's the kind of heart that God is looking for, a heart that can acknowledge when it blows it and can say, God, I am guilty and I am embarrassed, I am ashamed, I am sorry. 
God, overlook that, please, and give me a pure heart. I want my heart to be renewed and restored. That's repentance. We'll talk more about that later on as we see the real depth of how David went, uh, uh, how far he went from God and how he came back to God as well. But we have to have an attitude of repentance. Secondly, we need to have an attitude of worship. We need to have a heart of worship. David gave himself completely to worship. We're going to look at some of his writings. The book of Psalms that we uh, read today and that we sing songs out of today. These were psalms that David wrote. When he was a shepherd, he wrote uh, these psalms as he just saw the beauty of God's creation and he, he sang to God. He played a harp and sang. Later on, he went into, you know, into Saul's palace and, uh, and uh, he tried to calm Saul's uh, murderous spirit by just singing these songs of worship. At one point, David danced before the Lord in worship, just unadulterated worship, just pouring his heart out to God. Psalms 34 says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So not only did David worship, but he led other people into worship as well. And down through the years, we still value the worship of David. No one personifies worship more than David. And then thirdly, there's an attitude of service. Attitude of service. You know, David started as a shepherd. I mean, like the lowliest of everything. Uh, he, he wasn't given any place in the home except just go and look out for the sheep, those dumb sheep. But then he was anointed as king. We read that a few moments ago. And what happened after that? Did he become king? No, he didn't. He did not become a king immediately. In fact, he had to wait 22 years to be a king. I mean, that, that is amazing, isn't it? I didn't realize how long that was. But it was about halfway through Saul's reign that David was anointed. But even then, after being anointed, you know what he did? He went back out to care for the sheep again. He had to go back out in the wilderness, maybe for years. Some suggest he was about 15 years old when he was anointed. So for years he had to go out. The next time we see David is probably the story you're most familiar with about David. When he went to see his brothers and take them food, he went to serve them. And when he gets there, he sees the armies all lined up against the Philistines. And there's a giant named Goliath that walks out and taunts the, the, the people of it, the soldiers of Israel. And David is willing to go out there and to serve his king with a sling and a rock. You know the story. He swung it around. He loosed the rock and hit Goliath in the forehead. And he killed this giant. He served the king. Did he become a great military leader then? No, he still didn't. He probably went home to take care of sheep again. And then after that, he was called into, day, into Saul's service. He went into the palace, and for some time he actually served under the king that he had already been anointed over. But he served him, and he played the harp to try to soothe his, his spirit. In Acts chapter 13, the Bible says Paul, or Paul describes David as having served his generation by the will of God. He served as a king later on, obviously. In the same chapter, he quotes God who said that David would do everything I want him to do. You know, David had a humble servant's heart, and God did some amazing things through his life. From a shepherd to the greatest king of all time and the ancestor of Jesus Christ. You know, you might look at David and you say, man, that is an awesome story. But you know what? The Davids of this world are still yet to be seen. Because people who are willing to have a heart after God, who are willing to put their hands and serve Him, who are willing to be humble and repent when they blow it, who are willing to worship them with all of their heart, God still calls for people with those same attributes. 
He still calls for us to be humble and open our heart to be used, to be transformed, to be renewed and refreshed by His power and by doing everything that God calls us to do. This morning, that is my challenge to you, that if you are a follower of Jesus and you've already given your life to Christ, are you in the process of renewing your heart on a regular basis? Are you submitting yourself to God and just saying, God, use my abilities and my gifts? Are you, are you willing to, to lead others and to serve others with the gifts that God's given to you? Are you willing for God to work inside you to serve your generation? That's my challenge to you this morning. We're going to look at the life of David for the next few weeks. And you're going to see a man that you can identify with, but a man who overcame his failures And today we talk about him thousands of years later. His legacy lives on through Christ, through the line of Christ, but through us as well today. We're going to transform our thoughts a little bit right now. We're going to transition to a time of communion. And this is a great way to get into our communion time because I believe communion time is all about the heart. It's all about focusing. It's a time that we share, uh, we commune with one another, obviously horizontally, but primarily we commune vertically with God. We take some time and we try to put aside every thought, everything else that's going on, and we think about our hearts. And what, is, what are our hearts like? Are our hearts pure? Are our hearts open for God to move in and work in? If you have to say that your heart is a little bit over-occupied with everything else, would you take a few moments and just try to empty it out, your mind, your heart, everything, and just focus on the main thing, who is Jesus and his love for you? In a moment, we're going to take past our communion. We'll take a cup of juice a piece of bread to remind us of the body and blood of Jesus that was broken for us. And as you take this, would you just offer your heart, like David said, God, create in me a pure heart, a pure mind. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come today, and Lord, um, we are humbled. We're humbled because we see that you use people, imperfect people, unimpressive people. God, people just like us, that you call us, maybe not to be a king, but certainly to be a servant, and certainly to have your heart. So God, as we come to this time of communion, would you draw our attention and our focus to to the incredible love of, of, of Jesus and sacrifice of Jesus, his body and blood that reminds us that he gave his very life to serve us because his heart was entwined with yours. Lord, may we discover a new passion for serving you and a new heart as we worship through communion. I pray these things in Jesus' name.